What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Lamia Al-Gailani was an Iraqi archaeologist with a passion for tiny, ancient document seals. Our obituaries editor chronicles the heartbreak that Ms. Al-Gailani felt when thousands of the artifacts were looted during the Iraq War. And Chinese scientists have come up with a smarter way to try contacting aliens. What kind of messages has humanity already sent? And what are the odds that a reply will arrive? But first... It's a move that's astonished the whole of Thailand. Princess Ubo Rotana Mahidol, the older sister of the country's king, has joined the race to be the next prime minister. Her decision to stand has upended an election scheduled for March 24th. <laughs> Thailand has been under military rule since a coup in 2014, when power was wrested from the powerful Shinawatra family that's dominated Thai politics for years. The princess has registered for the Thai Raksa Chart Party, which is allied to the Shinawatras. She's pitting herself against the military generals. Standing against the princess will be a challenge in a country where criticism of the royal family is essentially illegal. Formally, the royals do not hold political power. Miranda Johnson is our Southeast Asia correspondent. Over the course of the 70-year reign of the last king, who's the current king, King Vajiralongkorn's father, we saw, while the royals don't officially have any kind of political role, the network monarchy has powerful influence and also the monarchy is revered by ordinary ties. So it is a very powerful institution in the country. Okay. Um, and the current leadership uh, essentially came out of the, the sort of the military junta that overthrew the previous government. They've got some power. Yes, they do. And they installed Prayut Chanucha as prime minister when they took over in a coup in 2014. Coups are not an unusual thing in Thailand. There have been several uh, just in the last couple of decades. And the latest one was to unseat Yingluck Shinawatra, who is Taksin's sister, and she was running the country, some say really as a, a kind of puppet with Taksin behind her, pushing populist policies. Right. Okay. So we, we have kind of a, a political dynasty, um, a history of coups, uh, and a revered uh, royal family. Okay. Who's aligned with whom? So this is where things get interesting and why today is such an important day. So for Around the last 20 years, there's been an endless political battle in Thailand, which has pitted royalist elites known as uh, yellow shirts against partisans of Taksin Shinawatra, the former populist prime minister who was ousted in 2006. His people are known as red shirts. 
And parties linked to him have won every election since 2001. So he's a a popular character. What has happened traditionally is that the yellow shirts as royalist elites, they have claimed to be champions of the monarchy, defenders of the monarchy, and coups held by yellow shirts have looked to the monarchy to legitimise them afterwards. So to have a royal figure, to have the princess now aligning herself with the red shirts, with a party linked to Mr Taxon himself, it's a total reversal of what we've seen before. Well, and, and also uh, surprising that a royal gets directly involved in politics at all. I mean, is, isn't part of the theatre here that that's kind of backroom dealing, that that's kind of notional alignment? Yes. So it's really unprecedented. And part of the reason why it may be possible is that um, Princess Ubal Ratana actually um, married an American, a commoner, a guy called Peter Jensen in the 1970s. And that caused a bit of a furore within the royal family. And eventually she had to give up her most senior royal title. She essentially had to give up the equivalent of HRH. But because she technically doesn't have that original royal title, it may mean that her transition into politics is a little bit easier. She's not quite, you know, a hallowed member of the royal family in the same way that she was originally. The princess seems to be quite media friendly. She has appeared in a few Thai films. Uh, She has also run a talk show for young people quite regularly. She works with charities, particularly around um, drug campaigns to try and help people with that, to try and help people with mental health. So she is a very visible royal. How will she be treated in the campaign itself? One's not supposed to speak ill of the royals, right? Absolutely. And I think this is something that no one is quite sure of at the moment. There are strict les majestés laws in Thailand, which basically promise between three and 15 years of prison for those found to be insulting the king or certain other high-ranking royals. It's not clear now whether she is included in that bracket of high-ranking royals, but equally, I'm not sure there are going to be that many people in Thailand who want to test that barrier initially. So she may be shielded from much of the rough and tumble of political play because of her royal connection. Miranda, it it may be foolish to speculate here, but it seems to me if these two enormous sort of factions, these two power brokers in the country are suddenly kind of working together and putting up a, a political candidate, then that candidate, the princess, stands a pretty good chance. Yes, absolutely. And particularly in a country like Thailand, where the monarchy is so revered. Nevertheless, the other news out today is that the current prime minister is going to run for a new party, um, a party that... Um, former members of his government set up to campaign um, for the military in the election. He's going to run for them. That's going to be a very difficult task to position himself as an alternative to the princess. And so his chances look slim while hers look rather good. Miranda, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Jason.
What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist. My fellow citizens, at this hour, American and coalition forces are in the early stages of military operations to disarm Iraq, to free its people, and to defend the world from grave danger. Last night, a square mile in central Baghdad seemed like hell on earth. An inferno. The very worst day in Lamia Al-Ghalani's life was when she walked into the museum, the National Museum of Iraq in Baghdad, and found the whole place had been devastated by looters. And this was in April 2003. The American invasion had taken place. Once security had broken down in the city, the looters just took everything they could out of the museum, and she walked into a wasteland. Anne Rowe is the obituaries editor for The Economist. She's been writing about Lamia al-Gailani, an archaeologist from Iraq. Well, her reaction, first of all, was astonishment and horror and misery, as you would expect. But it's interesting that her second reaction was to tell the staff, who were all standing around in a state of complete shock, that they'd really got to snap out of it and get on with it, clear up, try and assess the damage. She then, of course, had to rush down and see what had happened to her own particular sphere of expertise, which was the cylindrical stone seals of Mesopotamia, in which she was really the world expert. Little tiny plugs of limestone or hematite or agate, which were used to seal documents in ancient Mesopotamia. So you would have a clay tablet, which was your document, and then you would roll across it this little tiny cylinder, sort of size of a thimble. And as you did, these wonderful scenes would come out, scenes of rituals, of kings and goddesses and boats on rivers, so that you could almost reconstruct the life of the time 3,000 years before. So they were magical to her. The boxes had mostly gone, and she was left with just the remnants of her tremendous collection. And it was absolutely heartbreaking. There was nothing very much she could do about recovering the seals. That's the trouble, because they are so small. She really had to wait for them to come up on the market, try and catch them as they were being fenced through the black market elsewhere. She lost, in fact, two-thirds or more of the collection. She had 7,000. She lost 5,000 of them. About 600 eventually turned up. It was pretty tough to be a woman in archaeology, even though she came from a very noble family. But all the same, she was not expected to go to university as a girl. 
she insisted that she would, and she read archaeology. But then she found that she wasn't allowed to go on digs with the men. She campaigned and campaigned to be allowed, and in the end was permitted to go to a small site just outside Baghdad. And she thought, you know, there's a place for women in archaeology, and she was going to fight for it. I think she often found her work in Iraq a bit frustrating because for eons, it seemed, everyone had been fighting over the sites in Iraq, the ancient sites of Babylon and Nineveh and so on. They were so famous and they were so unprotected. Iraq was just too much of a treasure chest and so it was an uphill struggle all the time to try and preserve the antiquities for Iraq and not see them carried away into another place. One of the things that did hearten her a good deal towards the end of her life was that the Western forces who had been so destructive in Iraq in the past actually got together and began to help with the task of protecting the antiquities. So that, for example, the Smithsonian in Washington helped with the training of curators and the Metropolitan Museum in New York helped with opening up a new museum in Mosul And there's also a museum, a new one, being built in Basra. So suddenly all these Westerners have come together to try to make up what they failed to do at the beginning, which was defend the antiquities when they could. And particularly she was pleased that she was asked to select the cylindrical stone seals for the new museum in Basra. And she was doing that when she died. Anne Rowe on Lamia Al-Gailani, who's died aged 80. Last month, a historian scandalized the World Economic Forum at Davos by mentioning the T-word, taxes. In this week's The Economist Asks, Anne McElvoy challenged Rutger Bregman on how he would reform them. Uh, Rutger, uh, AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, mm-hmm. she wants 70% tax on incomes over $10 million. Is that your favoured model? If so, why? I think we need all of these things. I think we need inheritance taxes, wealth taxes, higher top marginal taxes for Gosh, on income. Gosh, you haven't met a tax you don't uh, like, have you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, we need them all. I love them all. <laughs> They're all very dear to me. Now, um, when you talk about a top marginal tax rate, you got to remember that actually the it works as a sort of a maximum salary. So if you have a top marginal tax rate of 91%, uh, employers will simply stop giving those salaries to their employees and spread their wealth around more equally. This is this is what the, the effect in the 50s and the 60s was. And that's also why tax rates do not only have an effect on inequality after redistribution, but also before it. Now, when it comes to wealth taxes, I'm a classic liberal, you know, not in the American sense of the word, but uh, like in the the 19th century European sense of the word. I don't like laziness. I want people to work for their money. You got to be productive. You got to contribute something to the common good. If we have moved towards a society where more and more people are actually, you know, getting these huge inheritances or um, rent-seeking, or that, where they have these business model uh, models, such as in the financial sector, where they come up with destructive financial products that, that don't really add anything of wealth, but that do earn them a lot of money, you know, that doesn't sit well with my worldview. I think people need to work for their money. To hear the full interview, download The Economist Asks, available wherever you listen. 
For as long as humans have known that there's a universe out there, they've wondered whether there are other life forms in it. In more recent times, plenty of programs have been listening in, scanning the dial in a hunt for communications from ETs phoning our home. But Earthlings have also been deliberately broadcasting signals. Paul Marks, who writes about technology and space for The Economist, has heard about a better way to try to make contact. So, Paul, how do we currently try to contact aliens? With radio waves from large transmitters like radar transmitters, especially customized for the purpose, and from radio telescopes like Arecibo, and the giant, even bigger one, FAST in China. And so what's wrong with that? Radio waves spread out quite a lot over distance. So by the time they get to a distant star system and any exoplanets that might contain living beings, they're so well spread out that the fear is radio signals may just look like noise and be unintelligible. So that's why a team in China, led by a guy called Hang Shuang at Nanjing University, they thought, well, why don't we try and send our messages to extraterrestrials with X-rays? And they've designed a transmitter that will get much sharper signals directed at the star system you want to get them at, with much higher likelihood of them being received. So there's something special about X-rays that makes that possible? That's right. They're very high energy. They are much higher frequency, so they have higher energy naturally, and they cut through space, cutting through interstellar dust without spreading out and therefore weakening. So they're a much better medium to target at a star system that's way, way distant. Right. And and so what, we just rig up the existing radio telescopes to, to beam out X-rays instead? No, we can't exactly do that. We have to do this in space, and we have to do it with a special transmitter that's been designed to make X-rays switch on and off in a digital fashion. We can't launch X-rays from Earth because the Earth's atmosphere absorbs X-rays far too much. So the team in China has developed this new system, changing laser beams into X-rays inside a small transmitter that could hopefully one day either go on a spacecraft or an actual telescope that you could put on somewhere like the far side of the moon, where there's very low radio interference. So what's always struck me about all these kinds of efforts is the enormous timescales involved. I mean, we we won't expect to hear anything back for some time, even once this system is deployed. We won't hear anything back from all of the other messages that have already been deployed. I just wonder how how much you reckon this is a shot in the dark, should I say? <laughs> it's a shot in the dark, but it's it's got to be a shot that's going somewhere. There's not much point in doing this and waiting all those years if it's just going to be noise the other end. Surely we should be sending out the best possible signal that has the greatest chance of being received. Yes, we do have to wait years, but let's not send out a signal that won't even be received at all. So what about the messages that are already sort of winging their way a- across the cosmos? What's What's out there? We've been sending them all kinds of things, um, like little graphics of what humans look like, the structure of DNA, a graph of the solar system showing where we are within it, that kind of thing. And we've sent them some silly things too. A few years ago, one of the radar transmitters in Norway was hired for a bit of a stunt. Some people messaged a Doritos advert at a star system. So you never know. They could come back here one day and demand to see our snacks. <laughs> <laughs> And we've sent out, in fact, a lot of music as well. In 2008, NASA sent out the Beatles song Across the Universe, you know, in the hope that music is a universal thing. Right, so aliens might not know what a Dorito is, but everyone in the universe loves the Beatles. Paul, thanks a lot. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. 
You can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here on Monday. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.